There are three things that I think I'm pretty good at. I'm an opportunist, and I mean that in a positive way. I'm generally good at identifying opportunities and then figuring out second superpower. Maybe I'm a capitalist, so I'm usually good at identifying opportunities. I'm reasonably adept at finding a way to capitalize on those opportunities. But then finally, and I think not most importantly, but critically important to the success, because how success happens is the ability to merchandise that. So being an opportunist, a capitalist, and a good merchandiser, you see the opportunity, you figure out a way to monetize it or capitalize on it, and then you merchandise it. That's how success happens. From Entrepreneur Magazine, my name is Robert Tuckman. I self-funded, built up, and eventually sold two businesses to major players in the sports and entertainment industry. And I am fascinated by other entrepreneurial minds and what drives high-achieving people. So on this podcast, we're going to learn what they've learned and what it takes to really succeed. Michael Casson is the founder and CEO of MediaLink a leading strategic advisory firm. Described as the ultimate power broker, he is a trusted advisor on speed dial with every major executive in the media, marketing, entertainment, and technology C-suite. They seek his insights and instruction for solving their most complex business challenges. Kasson and his global team of more than 150 specialists provide counsel for navigating the age of digital disruption in areas including marketing transformation, data and technology solutions, growth strategy, private equity, advisory and executive search, and talent development. MediaLink is now part of UTA, which acquired the firm in 2021 for a reported $125 million. In 2019, Kasson was inducted into the American Advertising Federation's Hall of Fame, which is considered the highest honor in advertising. Prior to founding MediaLink in 2003, Kasson was president and COO and vice chairman of Initiative Media Worldwide, growing billings from 1.5 billion to over 10 billion. Before that, he was president and COO of International Video Entertainment, Artisan Entertainment. He has been named one of the top media executives in America by AdAge, and was honored on Adweek's Power 100 list and on Variety's index of the 500 most influential business leaders shaping the global entertainment industry. He is the media executive everyone knows. Michael, thank you so much for uh, joining us on on this episode of, of How Success Happens. You are one of the interviews I have wanted to do for years. And uh, as you know, on this show, we, we interview a lot of famous, well-known entrepreneurs, but I have followed your career from afar and just the amount of people who talk to me and tell me you have to interview this guy. Uh, So finally, I get to do it and I'm really excited about it. And I want to start and just go back to childhood. I know you were uh, born in Brooklyn and, and, and raised in, in different uh, Brooklyn and out West. And what were some of those early influences on you that really shaped who you became in the business world? So good question, Robert. And I'm, first of all, flattered that you would describe my evil twin brother here, because I'm sure it's him that you wanted to uh, 
I don't really have one, but I'm sure it was someone else you were talking about. But but it's a pleasure to be here. And the way I would first say, considering the topic sentence here is how success happens, it's kind of like bankruptcy. It happens uh, slowly and then it happens quickly. Hopefully, those are the two opposite ends of the spectrum. But I think when I look at the early part of my life and the move west, and as I kid around, my parents loaded up the Conestogas and crossed the plains. Not exactly, but I think my dad drove a 1950 Buick Roadmaster across the country. And my mother and sisters and I jumped on one of those quick jets that was like 19 hours to fly to LA. We moved to LA in 53. And you talk about orange groves and kind of a hick town. That was LA in those days. So I really have experienced, you know, Los Angeles through the, you know, for almost a lifetime, three quarters of a century close, not that, not all the way there, but close enough. And I would say that one of the great advantages for me was in those years, I was something that was not even a concept then, but in the mid to late fifties, I was bi-coastal. And, you know, you think of that today because it's easy to pick up and just fly here or there. And back then it wasn't, but we did it. And why? Because my grandparents and my close aunts and uncles still lived in New York. And so as one would understand, we'd go back for the summer. So I did the reverse of people. I did my summers in New York and went to summer camp and all the things that New Yorkers did that people in Los Angeles didn't do. Now, the reason I share that with you, Robert, is because in those days, it was a very distinct. The difference between the left and the right coast was distinct. And down to the way I dressed, my mother would do what mothers did in those days. If you were fortunate, they'd go school shopping. And my mother <laughs> would go school shopping for my new clothes in September in New York. And I'd come back to L.A. And I always dressed different than everybody. And people would look at me and say, what planet are you from? I'd say Brooklyn. I mean, I, it, 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 it was an advantage. Maybe it manifested itself through fashion, but it really, to answer your question, I had the benefit of the New York edge in L.A. at a time when that edge was really distinct. Now, guess, of course, my parents grew up in New York, so they were New Yorkers, died in the wool, and I wasn't. My wife actually still says I shouldn't be allowed to say I'm from New York because I was only three when I moved. I said, no, no, no. Honey, my birth certificate says Brooklyn, New York, and I'm proud of it. Yeah, you, you need to you need to frame that. But it, it sounds like family. But I got that edge just to answer that question. Yeah, I was able you know, there's a great lyric in that graduation speech about don't, you know, always use sunscreen, you know, the one I'm referring to, but there's a passage in there that talks about San Francisco and New York, but I'll apply it to LA. It says everybody should live in San Francisco or in the Bay area long enough, not to get too soft. And everybody <laughs> should live in New York just long enough, not to get too hard. I think I had the Goldilocks uh, good fortune. I had just right. I had enough of the balance of the kind of laid back LA in those days. Yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, the high charged energy of New York. So for me, that was a real advantage in the fifties. I had a New York state of mind in LA. Yeah. And it sounds like family, I mean, going back and forth, especially those days, like you talked about your father picking up, moving everyone out to California. It sounds like you got a lot of inspiration from family. Is there anything specifically that today you're still carry with you that's made you who you've become? 
Oh, sure. I could go down a list yeah. from starting with my father. I inherited, I think, one of the greatest gifts that I ever inherited was a sliver of the sense of humor that my father had. My dad actually did stand up when he was a kid, not when That's I great. was a kid. And he should have done it for his career. He had impeccable timing, just a great and awesome sense of humor could tell a joke with the best of them, could do the dialect, the whole thing. I mean, he was Borscht Belt comedy. At <laughs> so I grew up with that. And I understand the importance of humor. I learned something not from family, but from a friend back in the day, Joan Rivers. I was fortunate to know Joan. And Joan Rivers famously said, when you make somebody laugh, you're giving them a mini vacation. I love that. And it's a great concept because it is that moment. If you take somebody away from what they're thinking about and make them laugh, it's like a vacation from whatever else is going on. Could be a one minute vacation, could be a 10 second vacation. But the idea of some headspace and calm and some of those things, you just take that few seconds and you can relax, you can change, you can do whatever. So that's number one. So I would say humor as a tool mm. and as, a, as an anecdote for a lot of things. Yeah. Number two, my mother, and I say this proudly and, and boldly, was a black belt in stereotypical Jewish mother and the <laughs> utilization of Jewish guilt. Oh, so gosh. Yeah, I, I know learned, that feeling. How to be on the receiving end in a strong fashion. But I also understood the brilliance of, and it sounds funny to say this, but of guilt. And if you use it as, again, I'm, I'm characterizing something and distinguishing between a sword and a shield. If you use it as a sword, it's a great tool. And not in the pejorative sense of, ah, I'm going to make you guilty. There, there's a nuance there. So I would say that. And then from one of my grandmothers, particularly who there's a book written that I found years ago called Apples of Gold, and it's just little parables, little sayings. My grandmother had a million of them, and they all stuck with me. There's a few that are nuggets that I continue to repeat throughout my career. One was she always used to say, don't read people's lips, watch their feet. And I always found that to be so important. And in business, it's got great application. I don't listen to what people are yapping about. What did they actually do? Yes. And think about that in our business in measurement. Think about that in the call to action from advertising. Think about that in everything we do. What are people saying is one thing. What are they actually doing? So don't read their lips, watch their feet. And another great one that I, she didn't make it up, but I always heard it from her was relationships. And I apply this to personal relationships and business relationships have to go through four seasons. Cycle of life requires four seasons. It's going to be sunny. It's going to be cold. It's going to be rainy. It's going to be fall, winter, summer, spring. Yeah. Relationships go through that. And because nothing's ever exactly right, nothing's ever the same in relationships. And so those kinds of old parables really were resonant for me and they've guided my, my life. So I hope that, I hope that answers. Your question. I love that. I love so much of that and coming from what you've done and, and from family members, from different things, from your father, from your grandmother, you started off as a tax lawyer. And then what made you shift course in later on to, to get into media? Well, I always had a view of where I saw myself. I had a kind of a vision, but I didn't ever write a business plan for life. I didn't say it's going to be this and it's going to be this. I just knew that I was going to get on a highway, 
initially, and I wanted to be a lawyer and I wanted to be a tax lawyer because I thought that was interesting and challenging. And that's why I specialized and did a master's degree after law school. I went to college, I went to law school, and then I did a master's in tax. And I did that because kind of let you in tongue in cheek. I thought, well, people who have tax problems probably have money. So I think I could probably do well in that space. <laughs> By the way, I'm just saying. Uh, so, so uh, you know, I, I had, a, I had a, a profit motive in there as well. But I found it interesting because in those days, you could be very creative in the way you did tax planning. The laws have changed dramatically over the years. But back in the 70s, when I came out of law school and graduate school, there was opportunity to be very creative in the way yeah. we did plan for high net worth individuals. And I found it challenging and interesting. And so that was why I chose that. But I always fancied myself the client, not the lawyer. And I, I'll let you in on a little secret, Robert. I was a good strategist as a lawyer, but I thought more like a business person. And that's sometimes dangerous for a lawyer because a lawyer has to think like a lawyer. A business person has to think like a business person. You know, my dad used to have a joke. He used to say he walked by the cemetery and he saw a tombstone and it said, here lies a lawyer and an honest man. He said, how'd they get two people in one grave? So, <laughs> yeah, he could never figure that out. But but I don't mean about honesty, but I mean, lawyers are lawyers. Business people are business people. Rarely does somebody have both genes. I felt like I had a stronger gene on the business person side. I did pretty well as a lawyer, but I wanted to be the client. So for me, it was a means to an end. I didn't know where the end would be. I looked at it as a highway. I wasn't sure where the exit sign was from practicing law, but I knew it would I knew it present itself at some point. And it did. And it presented itself in not in the media business initially, but my first departure from practicing law was running what was then the preeminent home video company in the world, titles that you would have known as a kid, we controlled back in the day, things like G.I. Joe and Transformers and Struggle. Very shortcake and inspector gadget. Sure. a company called Family Home Entertainment. And we were the leading home video company, even before Disney realized the value of their catalog and started in the 80s. This was in the 80s. Yeah. I ran that company. So that was my transition from law. The ultimate transition into the media business happened in my early 40s. So I can't tell you I started as a media buyer or a media planner to get here. I entered the media business per se in my early 40s. So I've been doing it for 30 plus years, but just to, to put it in perspective. And how did that happen? What was it that you saw at that time or thought and figured this is a business I want to get into? I describe myself in a couple of ways and I'm going to get roasted shortly tonight. But I heard about that. Your assistant uh, was telling me prior. Yeah, so. so I'm sure there are going to be people who are going to describe me differently uh, tonight. <laughs> but when I interview somebody, when I do my podcast or when I interview, you know, potential hires and employees, et cetera, we all have that question. We ask, what are your superpowers? How do you describe your superpowers? I would say that there are three things that I think I'm pretty good at. I'm an opportunist, and I mean that in a positive way. I'm generally good at identifying opportunities and then figuring out second superpower. Maybe I'm a capitalist, so I'm usually good at identifying opportunities. I'm reasonably adept at finding a way to capitalize on those opportunities. But then finally, and I think not most importantly, but critically important to the success, because how success happens is the ability to merchandise that. So being an opportunist, a capitalist, and a good merchandiser, you see the opportunity, you figure out a way to 
monetize it or capitalize on it, and then you merchandise it. And that's really the media link story. I found an idea. I figured out a way and an opportunity. There was chaos at the intersection of marketing, media, advertising, entertainment, and technology. That was the opportunity, the chaos that existed. I figured out a way to build a company, fortunately, have great people and develop the idea for MediaLink on the fly, no business plan, could never have written it, not capable of writing it, couldn't have imagined it, but it happened naturally. And so capitalizing on it and then merchandising it. And so that's kind of my three, the three legs of my stool, if you will, are that ability to see the opportunity, figure out a way to capitalize on it, and then tell that story and merchandise it. So it is about storytelling at the end. Take me back to originally when you started MediaLink, I I think in the early 2000s. And was there, you saw this opportunity, was there any hesitation or was there any challenges you, you know, right at the beginning? I didn't feel like it was a business at the beginning, Robert. And I would come home and say to my wife, who's my partner, and we've been married for almost 48 years. Congrats. Thank you. Um, She deserves the Congressional Medal of Honor. (laughs) I'm no walk in the park, but I would come home in the early days and say, you know, honey, it, it doesn't feel like this is a business. I'm answering the phone. People are calling. And she was doing the bookkeeping at the beginning. Like any other small business, you just, when I started it, you know, I'd been fortunate before. It wasn't like I was starting in the back of a garage. I'd already thankfully had enjoyed some success and was blessed with that. So, but when I started, Ronnie was writing the checks and she looked at me and said, well, it kind of feels like a business. I mean, if people are paying you, right, and, right. You know, and it seems like it's going okay. And I said, no, but honey, it doesn't. And I then got comfortable with it and it did become a business thankfully. So I never, as I said, wrote a business plan. It was just, there was a lot of chaos and that chaos created the opportunity. And the opportunity was, I was a problem solver and people saw that. And not for nothing, I had a fair amount of connectivity across industries and people tapped into that and said, Hey, Michael, I either it's, I need your help with this particular problem or strategy, or Michael, can you connect me to so-and-so? Cause you know, everybody, Okay, well, I don't know everybody, but I know a lot of people. And somehow, I guess the question I get off times is, how did that become a business? How did having a a good contact base or a Rolodex, a word many people who listen to this may not even know what that word means. (laughs) Yeah. How does that convert into a business? And the answer is, I don't know, but somehow it did. Yeah, you you were LinkedIn before LinkedIn. And it's interesting, just you talk about this being a business. Was there a moment when... Ronnie said, hey, this is a business. I see what's going on. But was there a moment where you were like, hey, you know what? This really is a business. And not only is it a business, but it's a big business. Yes, there was a moment where that kind of crossover happened. I think it was probably around 2006. I started to realize there was a business and it wasn't just me running around like uh, Sammy Glick. It was right. who Sammy Glick is, but he was a great character in, in literature. It started to feel like it was a business. Why? Because I surrounded myself with really smart people, started to build a team. It wasn't just Michael Casson, international man of mystery. It was a team of people. And we started to deliver real solutions to clients. And I realized there was a business. There was, and it, it had repeat capability. There were, it had legs, as we'd say about a movie in Hollywood. Does it have legs? It has legs. Or a horse. Does that horse have legs? It had legs. 
More from our guest, but first, a word from our sponsors. Think about a bicycle. It takes balance to get where you want to go. Now, think about business. Whatever your business or organization, you ride the line between numbers and people. Just like the bike, it takes balance. CLA, CPAs, consultants, and wealth advisors. That's CLA. We'll get you there. Clifton Larson Allen LLP Investment Advisory Services are offered through Clifton Larson Allen Wealth Advisors LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor. And our next sponsor. It can be something B to brilliant, B to bold, a B to breakthrough force that helps you B to beat expectations. How? With the platform B2B marketers have been waiting for. A platform with tools you need to build B to better relationships, to drive results that B to bash KPIs while B to boosting ROI, and to B to boldly go where no marketers have gone before, all in a trusted environment that respects your business. So prep your marketing to B to blast off and tell those built for B2C sites you'll BRB. Because LinkedIn is where B2B is everything it can be. Get started with LinkedIn ads and get $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash advertise to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash advertise. Terms and conditions apply. And we're back. You built a successful business, obviously, with the right people. And was there a certain criteria or someone, a type of person you looked for who would fit within the media link kind of culture? Two things. First of all, um, I didn't grow up as a consultant, so I wasn't thinking of hiring people who were consultants per se. I'm an operator, so I, I tried to find people who had operational experience. That was a key element for me at the beginning because the kind of advice we were giving, I wanted it to be operational. I didn't want it to be ivory tower like this right. you do in a perfect world because that's great, but none of us live in a perfect world. So I wanted to make sure, and in the main, the you know, couple of hundred people we have at MediaLink are people who've actually done the work. And that's important to me. And then I do have a checklist. I do have three things that people have to satisfy, both in business and personal. When I hire somebody or when I choose to make new friends, and I'll credit the final one appropriately, but certainly I'm certain this would be number one on everybody's hit parade. The person has to have integrity. That's table stakes. Secondly, because uh, I'm just enough of an intellectual slob, <laughs> snob. <not a> that <laughs> was for <you. laughs> intellectual snob that people have to have intellect. So integrity and intellect, because I want to hang around with smart people. And then third, and this is something I learned from one of my passions in life, which is art. And I'm blessed and fortunate to be on the board of trustees of the Whitney Museum. Nice. And when we vote on new board members at the Whitney, you ask the normal questions that you'd guess. Do they have integrity? Are they going to support the institution? Are they collectors of art, et cetera, et cetera? I mean, you know, you could guess. And the third and final criteria, because we take a lot of great trips and you're in you're on a bus with these people. Uh, for the Whitney. And so we asked the question, are they fun on a bus? <laughs> so intellect, integrity, and fun on a bus. If, you, can, if you can satisfy those, um, if you can check those boxes, 
you're in. That's great. Well, you've obviously met a lot of people who have checked those boxes and I'm sure others who haven't. You've become a mentor to so many people in this industry. You talked about yourself as this connector. What is it about you that you find all these people who talk so highly about you? I know tonight they're going to roast you and probably say different things, but I know from talking to people within this industry before I even met you that they speak extremely highly of you and you're a mentor to so many of them. What is it about you that really that comes through? So it's a great question, uh, Robert. And what I would say is it goes to my view of life and I'll translate it into answering the question specifically. I think in life, if you've had the good fortune to do well, you have an obligation to do good. And I find that to be true, not just financially, but the human part of life. I've had the good fortune of a lot of different experiences, some good, not some, some not so good. I've seen ups and downs. I've seen sideways and forwards. I've seen lots of things in my life and times. I feel like I can share and, and help people who are going through whatever they're going through. And it just is a natural gene to me to feel like you spend time, particularly with young people. I'm massively involved in helping young people wherever I can, because I know what it's like at the beginning when you can't figure out whether you make a left or a right. And finding mentors is something that's hard to do because you want to rely on people And so I get interested and I actually am serious about it, number one. Number two, I've had some mentors in my life and I know how important that was to me. And therefore, I feel like it's my opportunity to give back. Yes, I'm fortunate that I can give back financially, but that to me is not the measure because that just depends on the money you have in the bank. Time is a much more valuable commodity to give, I believe. I had a, a spin teacher years ago who said, when people say they don't have the time, what they really meant to say is they didn't choose to allocate the time. When people said they don't say they don't have the money, what they really mean is they didn't choose to allocate the money. Now, that may not be true. And time as well, because time is a finite commodity as money is when you have it or don't. But in time, I do believe you have more flexibility about allocating time. And I've just chosen in my life to allocate a portion of my time to mentoring people. Yeah. To look at at yourself and is there one mentor or someone, I'm sure you have a few, but a mentor that really helped you to really take MediaLink and change it and grow it? And, or even earlier on, was there- Yeah, I would have person? to say there was no particular mentor, Robert, for MediaLink. MediaLink yeah. happened, as I said, naturally. It was kind of, it grew like Topsy. It, it, it happened organically. I didn't, I didn't write a business plan. Rashad Tabakawala early on gave me some good advice. Just in a, I always reference this because Rashad is somebody that I, I don't know if you know Rashad, but I have enormous respect for Rashad. He still lives kind of within the Publicis organization, but he's just a a visionary in our industry. And I was formulating the idea, not, as I said, not realizing I was formulating. And I sat with Rashad at the Peninsula Hotel in Chicago, gosh, 15 years or so ago. And he just gave me one bit of advice that 
stuck with me and I've, and I've carried it through. I'd say earlier in my career, I had so many different mentors. One that jumps out at me is, is a, a cousin of mine um, who's eight and a half years older than me. And I kind of followed some of his trajectory. He went to law school and then went to graduate school after law school. I went to law school and went to graduate school after law school. He kind of set the tone for me. And he also set the tone in terms of the community involvement, having your, as I said, the obligation to do good after you've had the fortune, the good fortune to do well. And I've also had a view that one must split their life into thirds, a third for your family, a third for your business, a third for your community. Mm. I learned that from family, but this particular uh, mentor was my cousin, Stanley Gold, and I give him a shout out because he enjoyed great success in his career. He was Roy Disney's partner. If you ever saw the story about storming the Magic Kingdom and Shamrock and, you know, he he built that with Roy Disney and he became, you know, phenomenally successful. He began as a lawyer and then an investor and kind of changed the form of the Walt Disney Company, originally bringing Michael Eisner in and then yeah, getting him. giving Michael Eisner the boot. And Stanley was a mentor to me and still is. We're very close. And so I think if I had to pick one person of that generation that not a business person, but a family member, Stanley would would get that nod. I think from what I've heard and is known in the industry, I think MediaLink became extremely successful. You have this ability or you do and and then your your team to really kind of see around corners and and you know make some pretty bold predictions about the marketing industry and brands and digital. And I mean, there's no probably incredible time for that right now, but where do you envision this industry over the next 12 months or year, year and a half? So Robert, I was an English major and I like to play with words. I realized a couple of months ago, I stumbled on this and now it's become part of my, almost part of my DNA, identifying a couple of words that really describe where our world is. And the way I said earlier that I described MediaLink is living at the intersection of marketing, media, advertising, entertainment, and technology. I'll come back to entertainment in a Mm -hmm. moment. But at that intersection, I identified a couple of key words. And I don't mean search terms, but maybe they are search terms. Actually, 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 they probably are good search terms based on how I'm going to describe this. And what I realized is there are 10 words upon which our industry at the intersection I alluded to earlier pivot. And funny as it is, five of them begin with the letter T and five of them begin with the letter C. Hmm. So I now refer to these as the T's and C's, and I don't mean terms and conditions. (laughs) Uh, The T's are trust, transparency, talent, technology, and transformation. You find me a conversation at our intersection and in our world that doesn't revolve around some of those words, it's not, you can't. They permeate every conversation. The C's, so remember I said the T's and the C's, are content, commerce, culture, creativity, and community. And so, you know, if you look at the, the T's and C's, as I said, and ask me where the industry's going, that's where the industry's going. It's going to be dealing with the trust and transparency issues around measurement, around purpose, around all of the things that you know you need to trust the brands you deal with now. We need transparency in the digital buying ecosystem. We need trust in measurement, transparency in measurement, the dearth of talent and, and the great resignation 
and the need for diversity and critical nature of the criticality of that talent, technology speaks for itself and transformation. Find me a company that's not on some sort of a journey of transformation. And I'll tell you, you haven't found, you haven't talked to a real company because everybody's transforming something. And then moving to the C's, just to repeat them, content is king. It's king, queen, duke, earl, a princess and prince. <laughs> Creativity, the creator economy, ever more important. Commerce never wasn't important and is still critical. Culture, not only is it the culture in terms of the workplace and all of that, just culture in general and community. Yeah. And by the way, right now, the community that we live in doesn't feel very good. It feels no. like we're pulled apart in so many directions. So I mean, community, yeah. community is, is, has been torn asunder. And so those are the, the what's and the where's. Yeah. Before I let you go, I want to ask you just a couple of questions. One is obviously MediaLink selling to one of the biggest talent agencies in the world, UTA. You know, if I was to think, you know, now understanding your T's and C's, seeing where things are going, to me, it makes sense. But what was your thoughts of, you know, and why are you bullish on kind of being adjacent to the entertainment culture right now? Yeah. It, it, so, so that's an easy one for me, Robert. Um, when I, when I thought of, started thinking about MediaLink, one of the things I believed even back then was MediaLink could exist and might, might've been great to exist from the beginning uh, next to a talent agency, because there was this convergence occurring back to the intersection, marketing, media, advertising, entertainment, and technology. And that's why I said I'd revisit the entertainment piece. We double-clicked on that in December by joining the UTA family, which I'm extraordinarily excited about five months in. And back to humor, the good news is they still seem to be laughing at my jokes. <laughs> it, must be, it must be working. Uh, you, know. Yeah. You, know, you know what this does? This keeps the lions away. And if you look around, there are no lions anywhere in sight. So it's working. You know, I do believe the proximity to the creator economy was better and more important now than ever. And if, if I were to carry a quiver, having the arrows in my quiver that I now have with media link living at UTA with gaming, sure. NFTs and fine arts and esports, it's, it's all of these various disciplines now operate as one and created, I believe, a unicorn for MediaLink at UTA. We talked about culture. Jeremy Zimmer and the team at UTA have built an extraordinary culture. Yeah. I was nervous. I'll tell you a little secret. I was nervous about being inside of a talent agency for one reason. I always had this view that talent agents, I don't want to say it too loud, they'll hear me, <laughs> but we're kind of transactional. What I have found inside of UTA is anything but. Of course, it's about getting the job done, getting the client, the gig, et cetera. But it's a very, very collaborative culture here. And I feel great because that's who I am. And I was yeah. just nervous about kind of being a pair of brown shoes with a black tuxedo. And it turns out that I'm not. And this is a place that I feel very much at home. And I have to add, as you know, I had sold MediaLink four years ago to right. Essential. And I have to say, it was an extraordinary relationship. In fact, this week I had dinner and then breakfast with Duncan Painter, who's the CEO of Essential, the company I just bought MediaLink back from. And as I say, Duncan and I didn't get divorced. We're much more like Gwyneth Paltrow and Chris Martin. 
We got consciously <laughs> uncoupled. We still love one another, but it was just better for MediaLink to live where it is now at UTA. And it's because Essential was a great partner. We had a great experience. I couldn't thank them enough for a really good four-year run together. It just made more sense strategically now, based on where Essential is going as a company, for MediaLink to be reimagined somewhere else and not reimagined, but live somewhere else. And because we're not reimagining it, we're expanding. We're not reimagining it. MediaLink is MediaLink. Proud and happy to say that UTA is thrilled that MediaLink is MediaLink. So we don't have to change it. We just get to expand it and build it. But yeah, it's, it's, it's a great home. It's a great place. I'm excited as hell. Not that I didn't have a spring in my step, but it put a little more of a spring in my step. And, you know, at the end of the day, David Zaslov said yesterday, it's not show friends, it's show business. I now get to bring the business and the show together to have MediaLink at UTA. So I'm excited about it. And it's so far so good. I'm sure you are going to do some wonderful things for you. And I am sure they are ecstatic to have MediaLink as as part of the business. And lastly, I I want to ask you, so many of our listeners are either people who are sitting at corporate jobs, they need the push to, to do something. There's the younger generation coming out of school or in school thinking, I love it. They're thinking about business. If you're looking to start a business right, right today in kind of this current moment of turmoil in the world, and you take yourself back to, let's say, that this where prior and, and you had an opportunity, what would you be doing now? What would you be looking at? What would be going through your mind? Well, one thing that I'll tell you is two lessons. I said one, I'm, I'm changing it. Two lessons. Even before I became a nut for uh, Hamilton, okay. I've seen the show seven times <laughs> Live, I've so seen times on streaming. I could recite the entire lyrics of most of the songs, but one song particularly jumped out at me because it kind of described MediaLink. And I told this directly to, I had the privilege once of meeting Lin Manuel Miranda, and I told him that I adopted a song as a theme song for my company. And he kind of, well, <laughs> which one? I said, in the room where in it happens. Room. And MediaLink's been fortunate to be in the room where it happens. Uh, probably more than most, you know, in our industry. But I had something that predated that, which was the in the room philosophy for me, Mm. which was get in the room. Not as long as you don't use something that's untoward to get in the room, get in the room. Sometimes you have to enter the room, not through the door you desire, but there's a door that's open. So you take that door because I believe that if you get in the room, shit happens. If you're not in the room, nothing happens. So even if you wanted to go in through that door, but you don't get the opportunity, so you go in through that door, you can get to that door because you're in the room. So that's number one. Number two, the advice I give people is having an ego is not a bad thing because if you don't have an ego, you'll never get in the room. But what you always have to do is leave your ego outside the room because the your ego to the room. But if you bring your ego into the room, then it gets in the way. So it becomes, you know, it's a sword and a shield, as I said earlier, use it as a sword, not as a shield. And then another bit of advice that I give people is just get up to bat. I bring a baseball analogy to most things. And I talk about the fact that in the history of Major League Baseball, there's been 27 players who had a lifetime batting average of 333 or better. And I'm not that good at math, but I think if you get a lifetime batting average of 333 or better, it means you get a hit one out of three times when you get up to bat. 
And if you know anything about baseball, that's not that easy to do. And I apply that metaphorically to life and say, just get up to bat. You're not going to get hit every time. But if you get a hit one out of three times, you're in the Hall of Fame. Like, you're in the Hall of Fame. It's true. And, and so get in the room, get that chance, create the consideration set, get the opportunity. Then you have to make what you can out of it, but get up to bat. And so that doesn't really answer your question about where I'd go. I'll get to that. The second piece of that is when you're in the room, know what the hell you're talking about. <laughs> so stay, stay on top of it. Stay educated. So back in December, I was having breakfast with Rita Farrow, who's a dear friend, and she's roasting me tonight. I hope she'll still be a dear friend after. <laughs> Good luck. But Rita told me she was signing up for a course at Wharton on blockchain economics. And I said, bam, I feel back in December, like I did 20 some odd years ago in the dot com. Mm, yeah. I said, there's a lot of stuff going on that I don't know enough about. I need to get educated. I felt that way in December about blockchain and 3.0 and metaverse and all, all of that. And Rita opened a door for me and let me into a room. That room was education. So I signed up and I bought slots for 20 of our senior leaders to take this blockchain economics course at Wharton online, make a commitment, but do it because I want to learn. Yeah. So, so what I'd say is it feels like that's real. It feels like that's a direction. If I were going to be making bets right now, I'd look in that direction. But first and foremost, get the education, sign up, find that course. The New York Times did a piece about two months ago. It was like Web 3.0 for dummies. It was a Sunday section of the New York business, uh, New York Times business section. If you want, I'll, I'll have somebody send it to yeah. you. But it was literally Dr. Ruth wrote sex for dummies. This was, you know, blockchain for dummies. And it was great because it answered a lot of basic questions. And you and I both know, Robert, you're in the business of doing this. People are sometimes embarrassed to ask the question because it will demonstrate lack of knowledge. Ask the freaking yeah. question, because if you don't know the answer, it's not a dumb question. Dumb questions are if you know the answer. It's not dumb to not know something like say it, ask it. So learn about it. I love that. I love that. I try and tell that to my my kids. You know, it's hard because they're so scared. They ask the question or someone's going to think they don't know something. It goes all the way back to childhood. Right. And how we're just ask, to learn. Just ask and get it and in any case, Michael, it has been a pleasure. One of my favorite interviews, as I've said, and, and you know, I've followed you for all these years. And in any case, thanks so much for coming on How Success Happens. I wish you luck tonight at that roast. Good luck. Uh, I know you had thick skin. Buenos suerte. I need good luck tonight. Well, you're going to have to bring out your Brooklyn tonight. That's for sure. Yeah, well, you know, I'll tell you something, though. I pride myself... Robert on, on something. And that is, I think I know the joke. And so <laughs> if I know the joke, then I think I'm okay. I don't know that I'm impervious to it, but I think as long as I know the joke, I can probably roll with the punch. So I'm looking forward to it. And it's, it's something most importantly, and this is most important. I've heard a rumor that we were able to set a record for this organization to raise money for something that is so critically important in terms of the organization as she runs it. And it's an organization that really lifts women in, in our industry and in so many ways. So I'm more importantly happy that we are able to make a difference and an impact and raise money for something at my expense 
It's all good. You know what? And that's like, all I got to do is put myself out there to generate that kind of cash for the organization. I'm happy to. Yes. Do well, it's a, it's a third, like what you said in terms of community and, and uh, also you will be in the room tonight. That's for sure. <laughs> Robert, you're a, a, a mensch. I appreciate it. And thank you uh, for inviting me. Uh, to share a few, uh, you know, a few war stories. Yeah. Thanks, Michael. And best of luck tonight. Cheers. And that's our episode. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to How Success Happens wherever you get your podcasts. We come out with a new episode every Wednesday morning and you don't want to miss it. And if you like to share, please feel free to pass along the show to an entrepreneur friend who could use a boost and I could always use the subscribers. And do you have ideas for guests? I always love to hear about great entrepreneurs. If you know anyone, shoot me an email at hsh at entrepreneur.com or on Twitter at Robert Tuckman. That's R-O-B-E-R-T-T-U-C-H-M-A-N. Or even send me a message on LinkedIn. How Success Happens is a production of Entrepreneur Media. Be sure to visit entrepreneur.com for insight on building your business. Or even better yet, subscribe to our magazine. No joke, I found my first job after reading about a company in Entrepreneur Magazine back in the 1990s. It's always been my absolute favorite magazine for entrepreneurs. Thanks for listening and spending some time with me today. Until next time, my name is Robert Tuckman, just a fellow entrepreneur and your host. See you soon.